leave that up to you. Oh my goodness. There we go. Can you hear me? Yes. Can you see me? <laughs> I, I was told that I was supposed to get a riser or a box or something up here, but I hope you um, my name is Kelly, and I love alcoholics. You know, it is a good thing that there is Al-Anon. I spent the first 35 or so years of my life learning how to deal with all of the alcoholics in my life um, from these really, really sick, untreated Al-Anons in my life. So they taught me fabulous skills like you could yell at them, <clears throat> you could scream at them. Those don't work. Uh, last night I learned that you could take a butcher knife to them. <laughs> and it still didn't work. I couldn't believe it. Um, you could beg and plead with them. You could write them letters filled with frothy emotional appeals. <laughs> and the big book says that that seldom works, but it doesn't say it never works. <laughs> My experience is it hasn't worked, but if it works for you, please come see me. So, um, I learned that you could disown them, and I love that tool. Until like three or four days later, and you realize you can't live without them. And then they bat those little eyes at you, and you're like, oh, fine. Here's a check. Come back home. <laughs> so, I learned that one didn't really work well either. There is a trick that does work. Um, you could sleep with them. And that works temporarily. So you can buy yourself, you know, a good three or four days on that one. So, so imagine my surprise when I discovered Al-Anon, and there's like this whole new bag of tricks, a whole new bag of tools, and they work, and they're just weird. They're things you would never think of, like clean out your sock drawer. You know, how is that supposed to work? He's, he's misbehaving. Um, <clears throat> so there's all kinds of tools in that toolkit um, that I never even knew of. I never would have thought of on my own. So um, I would just love to say thank you to every Al-Anon out there that has a key in your pocket to um, open a meeting at some point this week. If you did not open these meetings, if you, if you decided one day that you're all just better and you don't need to go in and open that Al-Anon meeting... I don't know where I would be. I don't know where my family members, um, they may have a, a seat in one of these rooms, and I don't know where they would be if you didn't go and unlock those doors. So thank you, everyone, who's carrying a key today. So, um, In about five minutes, you guys are going to say, oh, my God, Kelly is so crazy. <laughs> and you're all going to start making some moves for the door, and I, I get that. I get that. I would, too. Um, but I would like to take a little time to explain to you how I got crazy so you could at least have some sympathy as you're driving home. Um, I come from a long line of untreated Al-Anons and untreated alcoholics. My uh, mother's father was a train engineer, and by every estimation, he was an alcoholic. Um, and they let him drive tons and tons of steel all over the West, drunk. He died when I was a little kid, um, and recently that family had a family reunion. And I went to the reunion, and my aunts got a little tipsy, and they, the elixir of truth. Um, and they started talking about um, 
life growing up. And they told stories about how uh, my grandpa would get drunk, my grandma would hide in the basement, and they, she would tell the kids, when he comes home, tell him I left town. And so I'm like, I can relate to this story. This makes sense to me. So the next day when my aunts were sobering up and they had some ibuprofen on board, I said, tell me more. This, I, I want to know more about this part of my family. And my aunt said, um, that never happened. Oh. Yeah, yeah, you all were talking about it. It did. I was there. And it, nope, never happened. So I learned my amazing skills of denial from that side of the family. Um, my father's father was a North Dakota wheat farmer. And um, actually, by every estimation, he was an alcoholic. He is also the family hero. He, um, during Prohibition, he ran alcohol down from Canada into the United States to <laughs> make sure everybody had what they needed. He ran his own still. Um, he died, oh, probably 20 years before I was ever even born. And uh, I would, she died. My grandma lived, married him, lived with him forever. Um, my dad was a little kid when he died. And um, when my dad married, she moved in with us, and I was raised with my grandma. My grandma and I shared a bedroom for most of my life. Um, so he, he died 20 years before I was ever born. She died when I was in my 30s. So there was 50 years there when he was not around. And she carried an amazing fresh, violent, angry resentment against his drinking for 50 years. He wasn't even around, and it was a resentment that was fresh like yesterday. So when I say I learn from the best, I really learn from the best. Now, um, some people would call my grandma an Al-Anon, and my experience um, is that a, she wasn't. An Al-Anon is somebody, this is a surprise, who goes to Al-Anon, um, who works the steps, maybe does a little service. So my grandma was never an Al-Anon. I heard a fabulous Texas speaker describe somebody like my grandma, somebody who needs a program, um, never finds one, as an alligator. So. So in my mind, my grandma was a queen alligator and the queen of all alligators, and she and I shared a bedroom until I moved out. So I really did learn from the best. Um, my mom and dad, between those two families, there's 14 kids. All of them are heavy drinkers or married to heavy drinkers, and some of them are dead from heavy drinking. Of course, my mom and dad found each other, and um, they did... What we do. If there was a manual for untreated alcoholics and untreated Al-Anons, somewhere near the first page it would say, find each other fast, get married fast, and make a ton of babies. <laughs> and that's what they did. So they found each other fast. Um, they got married and they made five babies eventually. Um, there's me and my four brothers. Um, all of us are heavy drinkers, married to heavy drinkers. And some of us are on the fast track to, heavy, uh, to dying from heavy drinking. So I do have to say, um, back in November, my oldest brother was wife-ordered into treatment. And, <laughs> and just last week, he got out. And I have a brother that's celebrating uh, almost 100 days of sobriety. 
Um, so I'm going to just tell you one story about growing up in that family. Um, when I, my dad um, was a heavy drinker, by every estimation, uh, he was an alcoholic. And he did what alcoholics do. He was really irritable, restless, and discontent. And he, he had to be on the move. And you probably know some alcoholics who pull geographics. You've got to move and you've got to keep moving. Um, my dad, for whatever reason, knew he had to do that. But he, he felt he couldn't leave the wife and kids behind. And I know lots of times they do. Um, my dad was a poor little school teacher, and his plan was to go to an army auction, and he bought himself a school bus. Somebody had painted blue. He popped a bunch of seats out of that and put in plywood, and he called those things beds. He called the whole thing a motorhome, and he loaded us up in that thing. And he and my mom would tell us, um, we're going to go to this fabulous lake or state park or this mountain. We're going to go to this great place. And they would load us kids up in that thing, and it would just rattle down dirt roads for six, eight, ten hours. And the windows would rattle, and the kids would throw up. We were all car sick. And we would always end up in exactly the same place. It was always the beat-up old bar at the end of a dirt road that was near a lake, a state park, or a mountaintop. So from their perspective, we were always someplace new, and from ours, we were always in the same place. And my dad thought it would be fabulous to not actually pay for a spot in the state park. You would park on the far side of the bar parking lot because it's cheaper. Um, and so he and my mom would put the kids to bed in the bus, and he and my mom would go on into that dusty old beat-up bar, and uh, I don't know, you guys might call it a honky-tonk here. It was, there was no honky, and there was no tonk. <laughs> so, uh, there might not have even been music. Um, but what I know, you know, I was probably seven, I was probably six or seven. My older brother was probably seven or eight. And they would go in that bar, and our job was to take care of our two little baby brothers. At that point, we just had two. Um, and they would go in there, and I would be terrified because all the things that would happen in a beat-up, dusty, old parking lot of a bar happened in that parking lot, and it was between me and my parents. And there'd be yelling and screaming and bar fights, and I could handle that much more than I could handle one more drunk stumbling out that door going, hey, there's a blue school bus in the parking lot. And they would stumble across the parking lot, and they would pee on the tires. And then they would sit down and, on the bumper, and they would have those maudlin, I love you, man, conversations. <laughs> and me and my brother would just be hiding in there, keeping these babies as quiet as we could, because we just feared if one of those babies made noise, those drunks could come into this bus. So I was terrified. Um, and I would turn to my fabulous older brother, and I would say, Pete, you go in there and you get them. And my poor brother, by the age of seven, he'd seen every John Wayne movie, and he was raised in alcoholism, so he also knew that even if you're seven years old, you better just take care of business yourself. So I'd be sitting there screaming at him, you go in there and you get them. And he'd be sitting there going, mm-mm. He also probably knew that um, my dad was... My dad was mean. 
And if he had no alcohol on board, he was really mean. And if he had a lot of alcohol on board, he'd be like, Maudlin, I love you, man. But there's this kind of sweet spot you got to find. And, um, you know, I think Pete was probably timing it. So he didn't go in too early. Don't go in too late. You want to kind of time this um, so you can get in there just about right. And um, after a while, he just, you know, the screamy sister would win out. And he would actually climb out of one of the best windows because my folks had put a broom handle in the door thinking that would keep the drunks away and we didn't want to mess with the broom handle. So he would go out one of the windows and I would watch him sneak across that parking lot to get into that bar and go find him. And I, I actually think he would, if he timed it just right, he could get some french fries and so I think that's why he was really waiting the fun. <laughs> so he would go into that bar to get mom and dad and actually to get mom. Um, my dad's, one of his favorite tools was to yell and scream and humiliate you. And uh, you did not want him to come out to the bus. You wanted mom. She might be mad, but a mad mom was better than no mom. So he would go in there and he would uh, bring mom out. And um, you know, while I was waiting, I'd be watching the stuff happening in the parking lot. And all I could think of was, what is wrong with you? Why are you not smarter, braver? more confident, more in charge. Why haven't you watched more John Wayne movies? What is wrong with you that you cannot handle this? And, and you were so weak that you would have to like beg your brother to go get your mom. And my mom would come out and she'd be tipsy or whatever and she'd fall asleep and I'd be fine. That's all I really needed. So I wanted to share that story with you today so you know where I come from. Um, I shared it in my home group a couple months ago, and um, I thought it was, I told it as a woe is me story. And um, afterwards, more than half my home group came up and they said, yeah, me too. So it's a story that reminds me that we're all just brothers and sisters, and we just have some different parents. So I even have a sister in New Jersey. <laughs> So um, it's a story that reminds me that we're all in the same, uh, we all come from the same place. Um, I also wanted to tell you that story because um, that part, okay, so it really was never going to be okay for my parents to leave a bunch of kids in a bus. That's never going to be okay. But what we do know is that we do the best we can with the tools we have. And you guys know my parents did not have a lot of good tools. But um, what happened from that bus time is that voice that I developed, why are you not good enough, smart enough, better enough, brave enough? Um, I met that voice, and then I spent the next 40 years making it really, really strong. So I have this voice in my head that tells me on a regular basis, you're not good enough, smart enough, strong enough. You're never going to be able to do whatever it is. And if I was an Olympian and I worked on my Olympic skill for 40 years, it would be a fabulous, amazing, sharp skill. And this is just the one that I picked to work on for 40 years. So for 40 years, I have perfected this really loud, negative voice. And it wasn't until I told that story to my home group that I realized that voice was there, alive and kicking. So in al we have something called the um, three A's, um, awareness, acceptance, and action. So last year when I said, oh, I've got this voice in my head, I didn't realize how prevalent it was and how healthy it was. 
Um, so I went to awareness and I popped right on over to action. I said, get rid of it. Get rid of this horrible negative voice. Help me get rid of this voice. And um, God has not done that. I still have this really healthy negative voice in my head. And actually, in about 40 minutes, you guys are going to pack up and leave here. And that voice is going to pop into my head and it's going to say, you are not smart enough, sharp enough, good enough. Why are you here? You shouldn't have shared that story. You should have shared this other thing. Um, so I know it's there. I'm, I'm, I'm preparing. Um, so um, my action was to get rid of it, and I haven't gotten rid of it. So my job is to step back and go, okay, I got awareness last year. My job today is just accept it. So today what I know is I just have that voice in my head, and it just will do what it needs to do. Um, God and I have spent some time dealing with this voice, and this is what he has given me to do with it for today. So today I have a prayer, and it is, Dear God, I hear the voice, I hear it loud and clearly, telling me I am no good. If this voice is your voice, bring it on. I will hear and do whatever you ask me to hear and do. But if this voice is not your voice, take it. And so far, that prayer has worked for me. I haven't been able to get rid of the voice, but I have a way to deal with it. So if you have the voice, I share my prayer with you. And maybe, maybe next year when we do this, we'll have a better prayer or a different plan. But that's my plan for today. So, um, I also wanted to tell you that story so that if your sponsor says to you, Put your name on the ninth step list of amends. You do it. Because um, Al-Anons, we are mean. And we can be really mean to people, but we are not meaner to anyone else than we are to ourselves. So um, put yourself on that little ninth step and, I don't know, we'll see what happens. So uh, that's where I come from. I um, grew up in that home with my four brothers doing those kinds of things. That bus finally did not work for my dad, so we started pulling geographics a lot. Um, I knew I wanted to just grow up and get married and put down roots somewhere, and I headed off to college, and I found the perfect guy. <laughs> um, totally cute. Um, the AA boys back home, they call him Jeff M., the Al-Anon women back home call him Java Jeff. I'll explain that later. Um, I just called him handsome. Oh my gosh, he was good looking. He was an athlete. He had these tight, little, tan, muscular legs and really long, beautiful, blonde, curly hair. And it was lovely to look at. And um, uh, last time I shared my story, somebody said, Does does your husband know that you talk about him like this? <laughs> um, and he does. He's down here in the front. <laughs> um, so afterwards, when this is all over, you come on up and you just check out those legs. <laughs> he also is taking some notes, so you should check those out too. <laughs> so I met him... Um, and he was fabulous, and we got married quickly. We didn't do the baby thing right away. Um, he wanted to go to grad school, and he applied to a ton of grad schools, got accepted to a ton of grad schools, 
And he went and picked the grad school that was farthest away from my sick family. It was 2,000 miles away, and um, I hated it. I went kicking and screaming um, because I I liked living in a place where I knew all the secret rules. This is how we behave. And here we take off, we drive 2,000 miles away. Um, And I know he didn't know this then, but we know this now. The school he picked has always been in the top five or ten drinking schools in the whole nation. (laughs) And when it's not in the top three or four, it's number one. (laughs) And when it's not number one, it has been kicked out of that spot by a Texas school. (laughs) Hook them horns. So, kind of feel like I'm home here. Um, so we went to that grad school, and thus began six fabulous years of grad school and partying and drinking, and it was really a wonderful time. Um, until we got pregnant, and like an alcoholic, you can't just do something normal. He has to go ahead, and we have to have twins. So. <laughs> So we're 2,000 miles away from home. We have these baby twins. We have no family. And those babies forced us together to work together in ways we never had to before. And um, things are not okay. There's a lot of passive aggressive, a lot of um, cupboard slamming things. And I said to a friend, "Um, things aren't okay here. And she said, "Uh, you need to be a better wife. (laughs) I love you people. (laughs) So... um, I tidied myself up, I tidied up the kids, I tidied up the apartment, and I tidied up the budget, because we had hardly any money. If you track every dollar, you'll be able to afford a pizza once in a while. And uh, what I know about that budget thing is that it's just another way of putting the noose around an addict. Because you're saying, um, from this day forward, I will know whenever you're using or buying extra. And so things got way worse. Uh, my husband graduated. He got a job that was 1,900 miles away from there. And so we packed up and we went to his job. And now I didn't have my family, I didn't have my friends, and I didn't have my job. I, had, I was the stay-at-home mom, and he went off to his work. And his work was very, very stressful, and he would be gone all day. And I would be with these two little babies, and all I could think all day long is, I can't wait till he comes home so I can tell him about this flea bit in town he's drug us to. And he would come home and he would, uh, he, just, he just really wanted the three Bs. He wanted uh, to see his babies, he wanted a beer, and he wanted to watch basketball. And instead there was the fourth B standing right there by the front door waiting for him to come home. And it's Sunday morning, so I won't say what it is, but it starts with being at Rhymes with Witch. <laughs> so, so he would come home, and there I would be, and just, you know, and, um, and we did what happens in alcoholic homes. We fed the babies, we put them to bed, and then we had knockdown drag out fights. We had um, broken doors and shattered door frames, and... Um, you know, our babies were pretty little when we were there. They might have been three or four. And one of our daughters told us that she had, she remembers this house hardly at all. But the one thing she does remember is that um, she had a nightmare of a train breaking through the house, just crashing through the house. 
And it could have just been a nightmare about a train, or it could have been her parents doing what her parents do. And um, if there was a manual for untreated alcoholics and untreated Al-Anons, it would say somewhere near the first page, pretend the kids don't know. You know, I just feel like we do them such a disservice because we raise them in untreated alcoholism. We raise them in untreated Al-Anonism. And then we lie to them and we tell them it's not happening. So we give them like extra layers of crisis to deal with. And all I can think of is to just keep putting money in the family therapy jar. I don't know. Um, So I went to my husband and I said, oh my God, this is not working. We need marriage counseling. And he said, yeah, you're right. You're crazy. You should go. (laughs) So... I went to marriage counseling by myself for over a year. And one time she invited him to marriage counseling, and he said, well, you know what? I just invited you here so that you could know that Kelly is leaving you. And it could have blown him over with a feather, man. It was totally, he was totally surprised. This is wrong. This is bad. This, this isn't normal behavior. This isn't how married couples act. And... I had been throwing him out for years. He'd been sleeping. How many people keep a pillow and a blanket in their office and use it on a regular, and a fifth of whiskey, um, in their office and use it on a regular basis? So I'd been throwing him out. He'd been sleeping in his office. He'd been um, sleeping in the basement. I'd found him apartments because I'm an untreated Al-Anon. And he was so surprised. So, of course, he goes, what? This can't be true. We need marriage counseling. <laughs> yeah. So I didn't know this then, but I, looking back, what I know, what I've learned in Al-Anon is that it seems like between an alcoholic and an untreated Al-Anon, there's this invisible plexiglass shield, and, and words fly out of our mouths towards their ear and just splats up against this thing and slides to the floor. So he never could hear me. But what I've learned about AA is that when he's in AA and there's Alcoholics Anonymous on the other side of that shield, they can say things to him and he's like, oh yeah, yeah, okay, got that. So really my job was to never try to talk to him. My job was to let AA take care of him because it was never going to work if it was coming from me. So, so I appreciate that that counselor said that and he could hear it. And so off he went to find a marriage counselor that would work for us. Um, and he found... Oh, wonder. How how many people, I can't say that. Marriage counseling is fabulous. You walk in, and the marriage counselor says, So, Kelly, tell me what's going on. It's great. Because you can say everything. It's a safe place. And so I would walk in there, and he would say that, and I would just launch in to everything. He's doing wrong, saying wrong, how he's doing it wrong, how many variations are wrong. Um, And... I would just fill up that little counseling office just full of venom. It was just, we were just knee-deep in my venom. And I loved it. And after about the third or fourth visit, um, the marriage counselor said, You know what, Kelly? You are so full of rage and bitterness and resentment and ire. You don't ever need to come back. You are not being helpful. I am the only person I know of who got kicked out of marriage counseling. (laughs) 
and I didn't even know that was, I mean, looking back, I can see that that is, that's when I stole the crown from my grandma, the queen of all alligators. I don't know anyone who can um, taint marriage counseling so badly that they have to go home. They flunk out. So, so I, um, I learned from the best, and I proved to myself that I could win that crown too. Um, I went home. I continued to do the mean, bitter things that I do. Um, we continued to fight. Um, he continued to go back to that marriage counselor, and after I don't even know how many months, or maybe it was a year, I don't remember. I had a whiteout about that. Um, I, he came home one day, and he said, you know what? I think I'm an alcoholic. And I said, I can think of another A word. <laughs> Starts with A, ends with S. Um, and um, he, there's no way he could be an alcoholic. There is no way. He did not drink like my grandparents. He didn't drink like my aunts and uncles. He certainly didn't drink like my brothers. Um, for God's sake, he still had a wife at home who loved him. <laughs> so it made no sense to me. I just thought it was just one more way to avoid the family or showing up or whatever. Um, I thank God he didn't listen to me. So um, he went off to AA, started hanging out with the old coots in the church basement. And um, um, Okay, so I, that's what I thought AA was. I thought that, you know how Dennis the Menace's mom sends him to the corner when he's misbehaved for punishment, or if you're in high school, you get sent to detention for punishment. That's what I thought AA was. It's where if you have a misbehaving spouse, you send them to a church basement to hang out with a bunch of old coots, until you think they've been punished enough, and then you let them come home. Um, since then, I have heard some laughter coming from um, AA meetings. As a matter of fact, uh, my home group is, meets Monday night, Good Grief Monday night group. If you're in Helena, come party with us. Um, and up the hall is an uh, AA meeting that happens at the same time, and those little buggers, they're always laughing. So, actually, not a week ago, we were having a very serious Al-Anon meeting, and those little AAers were up the way laughing their little laughs off. And um, Mary M., who many of you know, she stops the meeting, the Al-Anon meeting, and she says, you know what we're going to do? We're going to count to three, and then we're going to laugh hysterically just to show them. <laughs> So we did. So she got well quiet. Mary counts to three. We all laugh hysterically. And then on the way home, my husband was in that meeting. On the way home, I said, so honey, did you hear any laughter coming up the way? And he goes, yeah, it was really loud. And so I told him what we did. We kind of staged it and counted. And, and he goes, oh, so you guys are all just doing the fake it till you make it thing. <laughs> Yeah, whatever. <laughs> so my husband heads off to AA, and um, I don't do anything. And I would love to tell you today that when your, when your spouse gets into recovery, all will be well. But thus began the single worst year of our lives. And I know, I know there are people in here who are praying for this to happen with their spouse. And 
I can tell you recovery happened when I started. It didn't happen when he started. And it was a horrific year. Because my husband started trudging the road to happy destiny. And I had no other tools but to continue to do what I know how to do, which is we wake up in the morning, I pick at him until he starts picking back, and then we have a fight and we get really angry, and by the end of the day he sleeps in the basement and I get the big bed, and I've won. That's what I knew how to do. And he's off here, pink cloud knit, and I'm over here continuing to do what we always do. And what happened was we just got farther and farther away from each other. And um, it was like playing tug of war with somebody, and I learned to do that with him. And somebody wins and somebody loses, and when he got to recovery, he stopped picking up his side of the rope. And so I would just play by myself, and I would just get madder and madder. And... Um, after about a year, he decided he didn't have to live that way anymore, so he moved out. And that's when I thought, um, maybe I have to do something different. And somewhere in that first year, when he was annoying me, um, he came home one time from an AA meeting, and he said, you know, there's this place called Al-Anon for people who are married to alcoholics and maybe you could try it or whatever. And I turned on him and I said, you made this flippin' mess. You go pay for it. Although I didn't say flippin'. That was special for Sunday morning. Um, <laughs> I, um, I didn't know. I, st- I still didn't believe Al- alcohol alcoholism was our problem. I certainly didn't think there was anything I needed to do differently because I was the good one. I was paying the bills. I I bought us a house. I don't even know how I got him to the signing. Um, Cars, houses, uh, fed the kids, groceries, you know, and he moves out on me. I don't think so. So, um, so he said there was, a, there was this Al-Anon thing, and I thought, well, maybe I'll go talk to the Al-Anon doctor and find the Al-Anon office, find out what's going on. So I went looking for the Al-Anon office, and where I am, there's no such thing. And I was so mad at this rinky-dink operation called Al-Anon. Can't even have a, an office, can't even have a secretary. Um, so I remember in the paper there was a hotline number, and so I called that hotline number, and I said, oh, my God, what kind of operation is this? Your secretary has gone home early. The doctor, there's no sign. Most people put up a sign. And um, I don't know who took my phone call. But I do know she said, yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, you're right. Um, if you really want to tell somebody all about this, why don't you just go to a meeting? There's one very soon. And I said, I don't need a meeting. I just need a, need some literature. And she said, oh, you can go get literature there. They got literature. I'm like, oh, fine. Now I will go. I will tell, and I will get my literature and go. So, so I went to my first AA meeting just packed full of resentment about you. And I walked in, and this woman, I said, I uh, just, just want you to know, the office can't find it, and I just need a brochure. And she said, oh, why don't you just sit down? I'll go get you a brochure. Okay, so yeah, sneaky. Yeah. I fell for that. Um, so I sat down. This meeting starts. Oh, now I can't leave. Where's that woman with the brochure? And 
Um, they're going around the meeting and they, uh, whatever. I'm looking at my shoes the whole time and they're talking to a newcomer and the poor newcomer and I'm like, oh, that poor thing. Wonder who that is. I know. It was me. You guys are sharp. <laughs> I didn't know. I wasn't a newcomer. I was there for a brochure. Um, so they go around the room and they get to this, you know, I'm like 45 minutes in. I'm like, oh man, I'm the newcomer. Yeah. So I open my eyes and try to pay attention, try to nod, get, get me out of here. Um, and the last woman to speak, her name is Helen, and she said, um, you know, just try six. Just try six meetings, and if it works, great. If it doesn't work, great. At least you know, you'll know. Yeah, I'm so thankful she said that. In, um, in my town, I consider this a real miracle. I can do six meetings in one week in my town. And I know there are places in this world that that is not true. And um, wouldn't that be something great for all of us to aspire to? That we would all have access to a, week's full, a week full of meetings. So anybody, anywhere who needed us would have us on that day. I just think, that what a beautiful dream. But in my town, you can do six meetings in one week. And I just thought, I'll show them. So on two, that was Monday. On Tuesday at noon, I went to a noon meeting, and I got there maybe a minute early. And uh, I walked in, and somebody I'd never seen before said, Hi, Kelly. And this wall of shame and humiliation and embarrassment came just pouring down over me. Because there was somebody in this Al-Anon meeting who knew the name of the problem that was happening in my house. A stranger. And what I know now is he was at my Monday night meeting. And it was a guy. Okay, so if there's a guy in an Al-Anon meeting, we all know who you are, right? <laughs> but that's how out of it I was. I didn't know there was a guy in that meeting. The next day, he was at the Tuesday meeting, and he said, Hi, Kelly. And here this total stranger knew the name of the problem that was in my home. And, you know, if there was a manual for untreated alcoholics and untreated Al-Anons, right there on the first page, right at the top, it would say, Don't tell anyone the secret. I don't know how we learn that. I don't know how come we know that, but we do know the number one thing is if it's bad, you better look good. And if it gets really bad, you better look better. Nobody is going to know that the name of the problem in your home is alcoholism. And here I had let that one number one rule slide. So a total stranger knew, and I was just humiliated. And I just sat down in that meeting. I could feel the red of my face come up. I could feel the tears burn in my eyes that I had let my family down. And I sat there in that meeting. And about uh, ten minutes into that meeting, it kind of dawned on me that, wait a second, the secret's out. Like, it's out. You can't undo this. People know. It's like, it's like done. I'm done. I don't ever have to keep the secret again. I don't ever have to work that hard again. I never have to pretend all is well when life is a nightmare. I don't ever have to feel that horrible loneliness of it all looking good when it's so not good. And I remember sitting in that meeting and this like the, the wave of shame flowed away 
And I could breathe. I didn't even know I wasn't breathing for the first 30-some years of my life. And there I'm sitting, and it's like God had taken this cinder block that had been sitting on my soul, and he had just lifted it off. And that's why I kept coming back. I did not want what you had. I did not want to sponsor and steps and traditions or whatever. I just wanted to be able to breathe. And I wanted to feel safe. And I wanted to feel like um, I didn't have to work so hard anymore. And I loved that. And I did. I kept coming back. Um, and as a matter of fact, um, a couple years, a couple months into Al-Anon, I would go to an Al-Anon meeting, and my stomach would like rumble loudly, like it was another person in the room loudly. And um, I was really embarrassed. And I went to my doctor and said, I don't know what's wrong with me, but this is happening in these certain meetings. And I didn't even tell her what meetings they were. And she said, um, wow, you must feel very safe. For the first time in your life, you have a place to feel safe enough that you would just let your body do what it's supposed to be doing all along anyway. And that's true of Al-Anon. I know people who only sleep when they're in an Al-Anon meeting. <laughs> place to be safe. So, so I love that about Al-Anon. Um, I want to go back to tell you about the guy who said, hi, Kelly. Um, I didn't know him at the time. Um, he was in my first meeting, and he didn't have to say that. He could have just sat in the meeting like sometimes we do and not say anything and just let the meeting happen, and it's his turn to share, and he, did, he didn't have to share. And I know a lot of people who feel like they have nothing to share in an Al-Anon meeting. They'll sit there and be quiet the whole time. But what I know is that my God's voice sounds like your voice. And when you choose not to share in the meeting, um, you know, I don't know. I don't know whose life you're not going to be able to change that day. Because why would those two words make all that difference to me? And he chose to say them. So if you're a person who doesn't want to share in a meeting, maybe try something different see what happens because you don't know that um, today might be your day to be God's tool. So, um, I also know that that guy um, was in the wrong room, found his way to the right room. <laughs> My husband is the sponsor today. <laughs> so, um, so I, I started going back to Al-Anon just so I, could, so I could breathe, so I could get that cinder block up and off my chest. And, um, and what happened to me is, you know, you hang out with you guys long enough, you start doing what you guys are doing, and I got a sponsor, and I started working the steps, and I started doing a little service. And I don't know any other way to say this, but my life got ridiculously, extravagantly, ludicrously better. And I feel like I'm understating it. <laughs> I, I don't know a better way to tell you what started happening in my life. I started doing those steps, and step one and step two were just like, yeah, whatever, of course you're powerless. We see that. I kick him out, he doesn't go, then he moves out when he's not supposed to. I get this. Um, so I worked the first two steps. It was pretty straightforward for me. Um, when I got to step three, uh, made a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God as I understand him, not going there. 
That was like this brick wall, and I hit it at 100 miles an hour. Because there is no way, no way I'm turning anything over to the God of my understanding. He was a God who was mean and vindictive and powerful and controlling, and he would lie in wait for you to make a mistake just so that he could punish you. And there was never going to be any way I would be able to take the third step. I could not, I would never turn my life, would you have to turn your children over to something like that? I don't think so. That was never going to happen for me. Um, and I felt like, how would I stay if I couldn't work the third step? Um, at the time, I had a sponsor who had this fabulous God. He would be, he's this kind, loving God. He's supportive and helpful and loving and patient and gentle and wonderful. And I loved her God. And when things got really bad in my life, I would turn to her and I'd call her and I would say, could you pray to your God about this thing? Because I need this thing and, and I need you to pray to your God about that. And she said, um, why don't you just borrow him? So I borrowed my sponsor's God. And I spent a lot of time with him. And um, we, we kind of courted. And, and we, he would wait for me every morning to get up and make coffee and say prayers together. And sometimes I wouldn't show up. And he'd be fine. He'd just wait for the next day. And um, it was. It was like a courtship. And um, after a time, I thought, you know, maybe, maybe, this could, maybe this relationship could really work. And I remember where I was and when I was. When I got down on my knees and I, I said the third step prayer and I turned my will and my life, I made a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of that God. And I was terrified because what if he slipped back? What if it turned into the other God? You know, he hasn't yet. Um, but, you know, I still have kind of that, that old memory. And, um, but as soon as I hit that third step, my life took off. Like, like a lot it took off. Like things started happening that you and I might call coincidence. So I started having these amazing coincidences like um, my husband had moved back in and we had this growing family, a very busy family, and um, we needed two cars. Seems silly, seems dumb, but uh, we needed two cars. There were times when we'd actually rent a car to get through a day because there was no way we could do the little shuffle thing. Um, and I remember praying, you know, God, we're going to need some help, right? But we, I don't know how to do this because if there was a manual for untreated alcoholics and untreated Al-Anons, somewhere near the first page it says, have no money. <laughs> and we had no money. I mean, you know, if you live in an alcoholic home, money runs through your fingers like water. So there's no way we would ever be able to buy a car. So I asked God to help us deal with this. Uh, and we went out to dinner with some friends. The wife turned to her husband and she said, Oh, you know, dear, tomorrow you have to take that broken down Subaru down to the um, junkyard. And my husband looked at me and we looked at them. And my husband said, Let us help. We'll take the car down to the junkyard. And they were like so thankful. See, we learned to be of service to people here in the program. <laughs> And they were so thankful that we were going to help, and we did, we did. We took that car down to the junkyard um, about three and a half years later. 
It just needed a little duct tape and a little love and a quart of oil a week. You know, I'm like, wow, that was amazing. Who gets a free card? This, and it was so old. I mean, registration was nothing. They're like, oh, good luck to you. No. So, um, you know, I'm like, wow, these things are happening. This is weird. This might, might, maybe it's not coincidence. Maybe there's something else going on, but I don't know. Um, the, it, I started thinking something else was going on when I got this call from a really small town. And the really small town said, you know, we need you to come and do some contract work for us for about two weeks. And um, at the time I had been praying that my family could maybe have a vacation together. We were trying to be a family together, pretty fragile, but maybe we could come together and have a, maybe a weekend in Yellowstone, because we live close to Yellowstone. Maybe we could tent camp, and you know, maybe we could do something like that and build a memory or something. And um, This town called and said, well, uh, why don't you come here? And oh, I forgot to tell you the part about the town being in the Virgin Islands. <laughs> So I called them back and I said, oh, thanks, but no. The prayer was that my family would have a little vacation, a little memory building time together. And, um, and I had a daughter who was praying for a, a tropical vacation at the time, too. So, um, so um, I said no, but thank you. And I, we couldn't afford it. And um, she said, well, bring your family. All you need to do, you buy the plane ticket, we'll cover everything else. So my husband and I sat down and we looked at the plane tickets online. I was like, that's not happening. Because we still had the same bank account that had nothing in it. Um, so I said, that's not happening. But before I could call them back, I got a call from a little town that was about an hour from mine. And they said, could you come and do a little bit of work for us, maybe just four days? We can't pay very much, but we can pay just about this much. Which was exactly the price of the plane tickets for the Virgin Islands. So we went just in case you thought maybe I didn't. <laughs> so we went to the Virgin Islands, and then I'm thinking, okay, so these are not coincidences. These could be, these could be miracles. These could be miracles that are happening in my life. Um, and if you're like me, and you were raised in alcoholism, what I know when good things happen to me is I just hunker down waiting for the bad thing. There's no way I'm thinking this, this is meant for me. So I got really uncomfortable in Al-Anon. Good things are happening, and I'm just waiting for the other shoe to fall. And then I read something in our literature that just said, um, you know, what if God just wants us to be happy? Like, I don't know. I never thought of it. I never thought that that could be what he would want. But what if he just wants us to be happy and he just wants us to accept that as true? That life is hard and he loves us and he wants to bestow his gifts upon us. And what happens if um, you say yes? Yeah, yeah, I'll be your beloved. Bring it on. And Al-Anon is the only place I know to learn how to do that. How do I learn to be his beloved? How do I learn to be his loved one? How do I learn to accept those gifts that he's giving so freely? How do I set aside that crisis waiting for the other shoe to fall and just go, oh yeah, he loves me, he does this all the time. You know? 
And it's been really hard. And I've had to practice a lot. And the great thing is, um, he keeps giving me opportunities to practice. It's like my God has this dump truck of miracles. And he's just backed that baby right on up to my house. And he, ever since I got into Al-Anon, he has been pouring those miracles on my home. And what, what I know now is he probably has always had that dump truck. And he's always probably been trying to deliver it to my house. And I've always been the cranky old lady on the front step going, get that thing off my lawn. <laughs> and then I got to Al-Anon. And I don't know. You guys taught me to keep so busy. I didn't know the thing was on my lawn. You guys taught me that when good things happen, you say thank you. You guys taught me when somebody loves you, you say I love you back. And so I'm practicing just being God's beloved. And um, it's hard. I'm going to have to keep coming back so I can keep getting good at that. Um, so this miracle started happening in my life. I'm learn, learning to live with them. Uh, but it wasn't until the ninth step. Oh, my gosh. You know, if you think you got miracles now, you get to the ninth step and you're like in this wind tunnel of miracles. They're just coming at you at 100 miles an hour. And um, I've heard people say that, you know, uh, the promises are kept in AA. The promises are kept in the ninth step. And, um, and something happens in al when you get to the ninth step as well. And I hated the ninth step. If the ninth step was the first step, we'd all do it and we'd all do it really well. I don't know if we'd do it well, but we'd be complete. Um, <laughs> Because when I got here, I would have done anything you said. If you said stand on your head and drink a glass of water and recite the alphabet, I would have done that. I would have done anything. But by the time I got to the ninth step, you know, things were going pretty good. And I didn't need to be digging up any of that stuff. I don't need to remind my husband of what I was doing and how I was misbehaving. And, um, so I wasn't really interested in the ninth step years into the program. Um, but I did get myself to the eighth. I did make a list of all people I had harmed. And then I thought about making, becoming willing. But I didn't think seriously about it. Um, and after a year of hanging out there, my sponsor said, for God's sake, just do one. <laughs> um, and so she said that to me in August. And I thought I had to make amends to my mom or my husband, you know, one of the big ones. And she said, oh, for Pete's sake, just pick a small, little, stupid one. A little financial dumb one and do it. And she said that to me in August. And I didn't get sick of living with myself until about mid-October. Like, oh, yeah, and finally you just can't stand another second of being in whatever mess you're in. And I remember October 18th, I just said, fine. So I wrote a little note and I put $20 in the note. I put the note in the envelope. I put the envelope in the mailbox. And I drove away from my house, and I'll tell her tomorrow. And by the end of that day, I had received two phone calls for people who wanted me to come in and interview for jobs that they had. One paid $2 more per hour, and one paid $3 more per hour. Now, wow, that adds up to something. We could fix those bank accounts. And um, let me tell you about my job. I had a fabulous job. I loved my job. But I had not had a raise in my job in years and years and years, like more than eight years. And I had this tiny little raise. Um, but I loved what I got to do. 
But after a while, if you don't get a raise and the cost of living goes up and your pay stays the same, you miss this. You're making less. And um, I didn't want a new job. I, I liked my job. So I went to my boss and I told her what had been going on. And, and, um, and she said, well, well, what would you need? And I said, well, I, we, could, we could make it on maybe a 75 cent raise. I think I could do that. And she said, no. You know, like, where's the blessing in that? Where's, the, where's God in that? I have this fabulous job. He's, God's supposed to show up and, like, make this all work. And I was devastated. I felt like God had abandoned me, and then now I'm, I'm, I'm ruining my family. Now I don't have this great job. I'm going to have to go to this other job. And um, I felt horrible. I felt like this, you know, I, I fell for this al trick, and it's not working. So um, I took the job that paid $2 more an hour, and I continued that full year to work my ninth step. And within a couple months, I was offered another job that paid $5 more an hour. And by the end of the year, easily within that year, um, I finished my ninth step, and I was offered a job that paid five times more money than I was originally making in that first job. So sometimes Elanon is supposed to keep us busy enough that we get out of God's way so he can do what he needs to do. There's no way I could there's no way I could have made that happen. They hired me for a job I'm not even qualified for. I was like, really? Okay, I'm gonna say yes before you change your mind. <laughs> and I did. I said yes. Um, actually, um, they uh, they treat me well. It, the job actually comes with some respect, too. So, so um, I have stump truck of miracles coming at me 100 miles an hour. Um, before I left town, somebody said, make sure you tell them about the coffee. And I said, okay, I'll tell them about the coffee. Um, my husband and I, well, you know, we've flunked out of marriage counseling. Um, he moved back, and he, um, he was kind. He was kind and polite, and we functioned like two really good roommates that would show up for each other. And I loved that. And I prayed to God that I could still have, that I could have that. I don't need anything more. That's what that's what I need. And um, and we lived that way for quite a while. And one day I went down to a coffee shop to get a cup of coffee before I picked up my kids. Um, I picked them up at three picked up the coffee at 2.45, and I walked into the coffee shop, and there's my husband grading papers. So that'd be just really weird to not sit down with your husband in a coffee shop. So um, so we sat down. You know, we're just kind of cordial roommates. don't really have much to talk about. Um, and we had a cup of coffee together. And that started happening a couple times a week. We would meet for about 15 minutes before it was time to pick up the kids. And we would chat with each other. And um, sometimes we'd be like five or ten minutes late to pick up the kids. And it was just lovely that we could have this. When we were in marriage counseling, the marriage counselor gave us homework. We were supposed to sit on the couch for five minutes and talk about our day. And there's no way we could do that. We flunked every single night. So here we were in a coffee shop. And I'm like, wow, we could talk for like 20 minutes even. Um, and then we got a puppy, and um, 
we met for coffee at home then so we could let the puppy out. And one day I went home and um, he didn't want coffee. Okay, you guys are so sharp. It was like a coffee, tea, or me. And um, I'd written that stuff off. That's never happening. I just, I just wanted to have this kind, cordial relationship with my husband. I didn't need any. I wasn't. I could live that way forever. And here my husband wants something different. And, um, and in Al-Anon, we learned some tools for dealing with that, right? So we call our sponsor. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so that was my decision, too. There's no way I'm calling my sponsor at 2 in the afternoon. She'd say, hang up, get in there. <laughs> so I did not call her. And so the other thing we would do is we would go to a meeting, right? You do not want to have, like... Alan on advice at this moment, you know, when I got busy, I got better. So, you know, then I did the other thing that, that you taught me to do. When things are confusing and, and you don't know what to do and you don't know how to show up, you invite God in. So I just said, God, if you want this to be a part of our life, you better show up. And then God did. You know, and I have been accused of having a three-way with God. <laughs> Guilty as accused. Uh, amen. <laughs> because why wouldn't we? Why wouldn't we invite God into the bedroom? We've invited him into every other aspect of our life. Is there something so unsacred about um, a healthy marriage that we would not invite him in. So I invited God in, and um, we've been able to have coffee on a regular basis. <laughs> and now you know why they call my husband Java Jeff back home. <laughs> so, you know, just between us, I told I had this story back home, and I thought, oh, thank goodness my pastor's not here. But, you know, they make CDs, and somebody went right over and gave it to him. So that was an interesting conversation. So my time is almost up, but what I want to do is I want to say what I have heard so many times in Al-Anon meetings, and that is don't leave five minutes before your miracle. Um, I would add... Don't leave five minutes before your dump truck of miracles. Because if there's one for me and there's nothing special about me, there's certainly one for you. And I would also like to add, do not settle for your wildest dreams. God has something beyond, so far beyond your wildest dreams, you don't even know what it is yet. Um, if I had settled for my wildest dreams... We'd still be trying to live with one car. Instead, I got two. We would have had a nice, damp tent vacation in Yellowstone. Instead, I got two weeks in the Virgin Islands. I would have settled for a 75-cent raise. Instead, I have a job that you know, pays five times more than I ever dreamed, and they love me there, and I love them. I would have had a husband that was just a kind and cordial roommate. 
Instead, I get Java Jeff the boy toy. <laughs> so, thank you so much for having me. I have enjoyed Texas immensely. I have. I, I just have to say thank you to all of the raffle queens and the hospitality fairies. Oh, my God. And thank you to the committee, and thank you so much to my hostess, Liz. She is just a hoot. Thank you for having me.